0: As I was beginning for the theme of this morning, as I'm beginning for the text this morning, um, I I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. And so here's a couple of questions. How good are you at giving thanks? Does giving thanks come natural to you? I mean, when when you look around and things happen in your life, and you go, oh, thank you, Lord, or thank you so and I mean, does giving thanks come natural to you, or or does it kind of have to be pried out of you at times? And and let me ask you this. How, How good are you at giving thanks to the Lord? You know, i sing. Hallelujah. I, I, I praise you, Lord. See, I think sometimes we get so consumed with our lives, we get so consumed with, with the things in our life and, and maybe the things that are not going well that begin to focus on those things, and we forget to look around and see what God has actually done for us and how he's blessed us in so many incredible ways. The fact that I, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to spend eternity with him. So I, I found this uh, illustration this morning. I thought it was just really appropriate for this one. I want to begin by sharing it with you. Um, there's a man by the name of Mr. Otha Anders, and he lives in Russa, Louisiana. And he spent 45 years bending down and collecting something that most of us ignore, pennies. In October of 2015, the 73-year-old Anders, a supervisor for an in-school suspended children program, he took all these pennies to his local bank in 15 five-gallon jugs, and deposited a total of $5,136.14. The bank's coin machines took five hours to count all of the pennies. But what's truly moving and amazing about what he did is this. Apart from the thriftiness of reaching down and picking up pennies, it's the idea that the reason he did it. Because every time he did it, it reminded reminded him to be thankful. Each new penny on the ground served as a reminder, as a prompt for him to give thanks. And this is what he told CNN. This is what he told a reporter about what he had done. He said this, I became convinced that giving, uh, that spotting a lost or dropped penny was an additional God-given incentive, reminding me to always be thankful. There have been days where I failed to pray, and more often than not, a lost or dropped penny would remind me to pray. Did did you get the correlation there? It's not just the idea that he prayed. It's the idea that when he saw and identified a a penny on the ground, it reminded him to pray with thanksgiving. Lord, I I, I thank you for what's going on. I thank you for what's going on in my life. And this was an incredible reminder to him to continue to pray and to give thanks for all the blessings that God, for a penny. Let me ask you, what are the... What are the small blessings in your life that you're grateful to the Lord for? Maybe those things that everyone else would look away from, maybe not embrace, but you personally can look at and embrace. You know, the Bible talks about giving thanks. Over and over in the Bible, we're reminded, encouraged to give thanks. Hundreds of verses have been given to giving thanks in the Bible. We even have a psalm familiar with the Bible. Psalm 100 is the psalm for giving thanks. And maybe think about it this way. If your life has radically been transformed, by the gospel of God's grace, if he's brought you out of darkness into his light, if he has radically changed you on the inside of all people in the universe, shouldn't we be people who are thankful and graceful for all that God has done for us, for radically changing us on the inside, forgiving us our fin- sin and allowing us to enter into eternity with him forever and ever and ever and ever? Shouldn't we, of all people, be thankful to God for who he is? So what I want to do this morning is this. I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to kind of walk through for the next couple of months this idea that uh, look up that's on there. Um, look up. We're looking at Colossians, and we're looking at specifically the, the theme of Colossians chapter uh, 3 to, to look up, to, to look up to the supremacy of who Jesus is and what he's done, and, and to remind ourselves that who Jesus is, what he wants, it is so important to our lives. It doesn't matter what we're going through in the sense that we can always look to Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. I may be a family member. I may be a single person. I may be over here. and maybe whatever the situation is, I can still look to Jesus and what he wants to do. He wants to be the absolute supreme person in my life. And no matter what we're going through, we can give ourselves to that. And what Paul does is, we kind of looked at the introduction last week. um, Paul immediately begins to launch into this idea of being thankful or being grateful in in the context of prayer. And what we're going to see as we study this book for the next couple of months is this, that that there's three specific prayers in the book of Colossians that we're going to deal with. One is this morning, this idea of a prayer for thanks. Next week, we're going to come back, and and Paul has a a prayer for spiritual growth. I mean, you want to impact somebody's life? Come back next week, and let's look at this idea that we can pray for spiritual growth in the lives of other people. And the last prayer we'll look at down the line is in chapter 4 where Paul says, listen, I want you to pray that God would open a door for me to speak the mystery of Jesus. Wow, what a, what a great prayer. That as we leave here, God would open doors for us to talk about Jesus to non-Christian people. What a, what a beautiful prayer. Powerful prayer. And, and that's what we're going to look at as we kind of walk through this. Three opportunities over the next couple of months to be reminded of the nature and the character of prayer and what looking to Jesus offers to us. Listen, looking to Jesus, he is the ultimate in our lives, particularly now in the difficulties and challenges. And we can look to him and we pray with him and we pray to him and we pray to our Heavenly Father. You can have absolute, absolute confidence. He's going to hear you, and he's going to respond. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Notice what he says. Speaking of Jesus, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in what? In everything, he might have the supremacy. That's what we're looking at. Lord, in my life, I want you to have the supremacy in every aspect of my life. My personal life, my thought life, my relationship with my wife. My relationship with my kid, my relationship with every one. I want you to have the supremacy and what I can do based upon this verse and, and the way that we pray, I can look to him in confidence knowing that he will respond because of who he is and what he's done. And that's what we're going to look at today, this wonderful prayer of thanks and what it looks like and what it means in our lives this morning. So Colossians chapter One, let me read the text. And by the way, when we read the text, I always like to say this is the word of God. What's interesting, what I can say to you this morning from the book of Colossians, this is what Paul wrote about the word of God. He said this in in chapter one, verse 25. To present to you, Paul said, I have a commission to present to you the word of God in its fullness. What we have is the fullness of the word of God from the apostle Paul, the one who saw the resurrected Jesus, who was commissioned as apostle and is now writing this letter to the people of Colossae. Man, this is good stuff. God is just saying, this is who I am. We give thanks and we respond this morning. So let me read the text. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you've already heard about in the Word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit, and it's growing, just as I've been doing so among you since the day you heard it, and you understood God's grace and all of its truth. verse seven. I love this. You learned it from a papyrus, our dear. Follow fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ Jesus on our behalf and who also told us of your love and the Spirit. That's just good stuff. Reminds us that we have the opportunity to pray and to give thanks, to remind us of a godly man who brought the gospel to him. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to be here this morning. Father, thank you for the warmth of the building. God, thank you that we can sing our praises to you and be reminded that death has been conquered and that King Jesus is alive. And not only is King Jesus alive, but he, he lives inside of us. And Father, your word simply says that we're two or three are gathered together. In your name, you are right here with us. And we and we thank you for that. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you guide and direct me. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so this is where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at prayer as as an opportunity to give thanks. And what what Paul is going to give thanks for to the people at Colossae, remember, they're 1,300 miles away, for this church in Colossae, Aeropolis, and Laodicea, what he's going to thank them for is, number one, faith, number two, love, number three, hope, and number four, this idea of, of people, godly people. So that's the outline of where we're going this morning. So let's begin. Prayer is, is an opportunity for us to give thanks. Look at verse 3 again. Notice what Paul writes. And he just goes right into it. He's given the introductory, hello, how are you? And he's saying, Paul and Timothy, are writing this letter to you. And in verse 3 says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Listen, this is a great remember, reminder for us that when you pray, when you sit down, when you open your Bible, when you open it in front of you, and when you pray, it's, it's, it's okay to give thanks. You don't have to just blast out a laundry list of things that you want from the Lord, but but what you have the opportunity is, is to just simply say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for all the blessings. See, when when you have this mindset of wanting to give thanks, you have to go back and evaluate your life and see, okay, what am I actually thankful for? And and when we look at the life of Jesus and what he prayed for, Jesus always gave thanks. Jesus prayed. He prayed for guidance. He prayed in a time of crisis. He prayed before he would do miracles. He prayed before he chose the 12. He he prayed all of the time when he needed wisdom. He went to the Lord. He consistently modeled this idea of prayer. And the apostle Paul, he did the same thing. That's why he says, listen, we always thank God when we pray for you. As a Jewish man, he had at least two, probably three opportunities times during the day when he would walk off, go aside, and what he would do is he would pray to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, they would pray this daily is what they would do. Deuteronomy 6 says this, and this is what guided a Jewish man's prayer. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. And they would pray this because they knew that God was the great benefactor, that God wanted to bless them, that God wanted to reach down and touch their lives. So this was an important part of the way that they would pray. So they would begin each day saying, Lord, thank you for who you are. And may I love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Shema, so they would pray that. But another form of prayer was just they, they called it the 18 benedictions. In, e, in Hebrew, a, a benediction was any kind of prayer that began with the word bless. So the idea of, of to bless or to speak well or to speak well of God, to be blessed is, was an important part of, of who they were as people. Understanding of who God is, what he had done for them, and what he wants to do in their life, they would always speak this idea of blessing God or blessing other people. So in the morning, they woke up before the feet hit the ground. Blessed are you, God. Noontime, stop, wherever I'm at, blessed are you, God. Later in the day, blessed are you, God. Thank you for who you are and what you have done for me. Why do you think they did that? Maybe what they were doing was reminding their hearts and their minds about the nature and the character of who God is. what he's done for us and then we can look around and see all of these incredible blessings that he's given to us and that we can actually respond to him. When you love God and you understand what he has done for you, you will live a life of gratitude and your gratitude won't be wrapped up into all the stuff that you want. It's not about Gratitude's not about getting all of the stuff on my list. Gratitude's about knowing and responding to who God is and what he's done for us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am the one who's received all of these incredible, wonderful benefits because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And do I recognize that for who he is in, in my life? Or am I settling for trinkets and all of these other things in my life because I want something else as opposed to who Jesus is and what he's done for us? That's why Paul prays. He says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul and Timothy, Epaphras, what did they do? They went before the Lord and they prayed for people because they loved them. So what does this tell us about Paul? What might be learned from Paul? Well, he prayed an awful lot. But he prayed because he had an understanding of absolute dependence upon God in his own life, in his ministry. In other words, he knew that apart from Jesus, he could do nothing. He needed to abide in the vine. So he was absolutely dependent upon the Lord for what the Lord would do in his personal life and what God would do in his ministry. By the way, where is he at? He's in prison. He says to them at the end of this book, by the way, remember my chains. In the midst of all this, he's interspersing this beautiful letter with this idea of, of thanksgiving, praying with thanksgiving all throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 12, he's thankful for salvation. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I, I'm overflowing with thankfulness. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, by the way, just be thankful. Chapter 3, verse 17, we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Why? Because we are grateful. We're coming together, we're gathering together as a community, recognizing what God has done in the lives of people around here. So what do we do? We're singing and giving thanks. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this. Be watchful. And while you're watching, be thankful. Over and over, Paul reminds us in this prayer to be thankful for who God is and what he's done and all of the wonderful blessings that he's done for us and he's given to us. Remember Paul, from what we know, he'd never been to this church. He didn't help plant this church. So what does he do? He's basically praying for people that he never met. Based upon the report from the parents. he's praying for people that he'd never met. Well, what a great incentive for you and I to pray for people that maybe we've never met. Maybe you've never met Kristen Leach, the gal that we prayed for. You can pray for her. You can write our name down. Pray for some of our missionaries. Pray for someone that we don't even know. We, we, We can write those things down, and we can begin to intercede and pray for those kinds of people. And that's what Paul is doing. In the midst of this prayer, what is he doing? He's giving thanks to who God is and what he's done. So let's look at what specifically are Paul and Timothy thankful for? What are they praying in thanks for? Let me walk through these. Number one. They're thanking the Lord. They're thanking him for this presence of faith. Look at verse four. He says this, because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now listen, there's no doubt what Paul is doing here. He is grateful and he's thankful for the fact that God had radically changed their life. If you go back and look at this, you can see how Paul describes their former way of life. He says, listen, you were alienated from God. You were hostile to God. You were an enemy of God. You didn't want anything to do with God. That's the condition that you were in. And you needed to be rescued. You needed to be taken out of that kind of situation. You needed to be delivered. You needed to be transformed from what? From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He recognized how difficult and challenging it was for the people. So he knew that they initially need to embrace this idea of Jesus, putting their faith, confidence, and trust in Jesus for their initial salvation. But it's deeper than that. It's not the fact that we've given our life to Jesus and we're secure and we're going to go to heaven. Faith is so much more deeper than that. And I think that's what Paul is reminding them and us in our text this morning. There was a mystery that was being revolved not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. God was, was breaking into human history in an incredibly powerful way that the Messiah would come, Jesus would come, but Jesus as the Messiah would come and he would do what? He would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross for my sin and your sin. And it was opening up an entirely different relationship for people outside of Judaism. Look at chapter 1, verse 27, and, and notice how Paul describes this mystery, this, this unveiling of what God was doing in the unique person of Jesus. He says this, To them, pagans, Gentiles like me, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, what? The glorious riches of this mystery. What is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jewish people knew that they were chosen by God. They knew that they had this relationship with God. They knew that they could follow the law. They knew they had the sacrifices. They had the, 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 the temple. They, they knew they had all of these incredibly wonderful things. And now, in the mystery of Jesus, he comes and says, listen, by the way, Christ is going to be inside of you through the Spirit of God. Christ is going to be living inside of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is living in you today? He resides Inside of you, Christ, what? The hope of glory? How powerful that is? Incredibly freeing that is? In the world that we live in? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Radical, radical kind of thinking. This mystery is being revealed to these Gentiles, to these pagan people. Do they embrace it? Would they embrace it? Do you embrace it? Do you believe it? A man by the name of Mark Twain once said this. We know who that is. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. In other words, you just kind of fake it. You know, you want to believe it. You want to believe that it's going to be true, so you just to, kind of, you kind of wishful believe it, knowing that it's not really going to come true. That's not true of our faith, and it's not true of the people at Colossae. Did you hear how, how how Paul described this? It says this: "We have we've heard about your faith, and other words, their, their faith wasn't something private. Their, their, their faith was going out. Colossae, Eropolis. Laodicea, these, these three cities were somehow connected within 10, 15 miles of each other. Epaphras brought the message of the gospel to the people at Colossae. And now as they've embraced faith, embraced faith, what is happening? The message of Christ and the gospel is going out from here, and it's going out to other people. Notice what it says in verse 6. It says this, it was bearing fruit, and growing. What does the gospel do? It radically transforms a person's life and then it grows and it bears fruit as people embrace Jesus and the Messiah and who he is and what he's done for us. And by the way that should remind us that God wants us to be an active part of taking the message of Jesus out. That's why in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 he's praying that this would happen. I want us to do that Pray that God, wherever you would be, that God would allow you and I the opportunity to take the message of Jesus Christ out to those around us. Notice how Paul describes, notice this is your faith. Notice how Paul describes the sphere or the scope of that faith. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says this, I want you to, you need to continue in your faith. Don't give it up. Chapter 2, verse 5, he describes it this way. I I want you to be strengthened in faith. Strengthened in faith. In in other words, the more that you go out and trust the Lord for what he's going to do in your life, you're going to be strengthened. The the more that I respond to the difficulties and challenges in my life, I'm going to be strengthened to continue to move on. I'm going to grow stronger. My muscles are going to become stronger. I'm going to be strengthened in faith. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says this. I, I want you to be strengthened, and I also want your faith to be firm. I want people to see the firmness of your faith. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says this. I want you to have faith in the power of God. Do you believe who God is and what he can do in your life? Do you believe that God can work in ways that we cannot think or imagine the difficulties and challenges of our life? That God still has the the capabilities to heal, to transform lives, to change circumstances? Do you believe in that kind of power from the Lord? Are we just kind of complacently going along thinking, well, you know what? I'm trusting Jesus, yay. But the circumstances of my life are not going to change very much. And what what Paul is writing and he's thanking the Lord for, listen, I, I thank you for your faith. I thank you for the way that your faith goes up. I thank you for the way that you're trusting in the Lord. That's why he says thank you for your faith. Your faith is bearing fruit and growing. In other words, they're looking at the lives of individuals and they're seeing how their faith is being strengthened in individual people. And by the way, this is is an incredibly diverse church we're going to see. This This is a mixed mash of people. And you kind of look around going, well, how did he get in here? How did that guy get in there? How did he get in here? We're going to see; it's a mishmash of people, and they're going to love each other. So, so Paul says, "Listen, I, I, I thank you for, I thank you for faith." Number two, he says this: I, "I thank you for love." There's a family kind of love that Paul is thanking the Lord for. Look at verse four again. He says, "Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints." So, I, I put together my my sermon here, and I write out my notes, and then I, I kind of dictate the the scriptures that I want to use, and then. And then Gary comes up, and he comes up to pray. You know, Gary's praying in the midst of a, a really bad place, if you don't know he is. That's the power of God. That's faith right there. And he comes up and he quotes John chapter 13. Well, that's the text that I have. I want to put it on the screen right here. We learn from Jesus. We learn from the life of Jesus what love really looks like. And notice what Jesus said, and notice what Gary wrote. A new command that I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You've got to love me. Like Jesus loved you. That might be pretty difficult at times because sometimes I can be a little difficult to love and you can be a little difficult to love. What's interesting is if you know anything about John chapter 13, you know, remember how it begins? John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus is going to show them the full extent of his love. He's going to give them a demonstration example of the fullest extent of his love. So as they gather into the room, they all walk in, they lay down. And what does Jesus do? He puts a, a, row, a towel around him and then he goes and what he does? He washes everybody's feet in John chapter 13. And because he wants to show them, he wants to demonstrate to them the full extent of his love. Knowing full well that in a matter of, of just a short amount of time, these people that, who have professed their love for him, he's just washed their, washed their feet, what are they going to do? They're going to run. They're going to run. They're going to scatter and they're going to leave him by himself. Knowing that Jesus still demonstrated to them the full extent of his love. That's a pretty incredible demonstration of love, don't you think? It's interesting how Paul refers to people in Colossians as saints three times. Uh, Verse 2, verse 4, and verse 26 of chapter 1. He calls them saints. When you look around at the church, do you see saints? You see saints or ain'ts? I'm, I'm a saint. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And you're a saint. You are a holy one. You've been separated from the world. You've been separated and placed in the body of Christ, the family of God, because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are now a saint. Do you look at people that way and see that? Or do we have a tendency to divide up the way that we look at people? I told you I wanted to show you what the church looked at. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Notice how Paul describes these people. He says this, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with his practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed. The new self is I am now in Jesus because of my faith and my trust in Jesus, the life, death, burial, and resurrection for who he is and what he's done in my life. I'm a new creation. I'm not that old that old man, if you will. It says I put on the new self which is being renewed in what? In the knowledge and the image of of its creator. I'm being made like Jesus. I'm being renewed on the inside to be like Jesus. And so are you, Jesus, the one who went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin for us, who did all these wonderful, powerful miracles. I'm going to be like Jesus one day. And he goes on to say, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. If you go back and look at this list, it is an incredibly wide range of people sitting there in the church. A Scythian is a barbarian. He's a wild person. You have slaves, you have freemen, you have Jews and Gentiles. Many times didn't even like each other. And now they're sitting in the close proximity of a house church. And Paul says, Listen, there's no dividing one. We're all the same. And God is taking us on a journey to conform us in the very image of Jesus. And because of that, we need to love each other. Let me ask you when you look around, you look around at people and you make judgments based upon maybe the race, what race they are. Into their political party, yeah, that other political party, they are just demonic, aren't they? Yeah, we're living in a mess right now. I, I can't look to Washington to solve the challenges of the world. I, I need to look to Jesus. That's what he's asking me to do, look to Jesus. And we can't look at each other and divide ourselves up because of the way that we look at another race or another person or gender or whether they wear a mask or not, or whether they're going to get a vaccine or not. And I don't want us to be so non-responding to other people because of maybe some of the things that they do. And, and we do have a tendency to spiritualize those things. I get it. And a lot of times those things are really important. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is, the main thing is this. The main thing is Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciple when you what? Love one another. That's the challenge that we have. And love is incredibly difficult and challenging because we're all very difficult. It challenges us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. To give of myself in another way. Think about it this way, in the context of marriage. I am called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Oh, that's really easy. But remember, he gave himself as a sacrifice For the church, Clint. So are you living that kind of sacrificial love for your wife on Valentine's Day? Love compels us to respond in a way that is powerful. Are we doing that? Or are we looking at people thinking that, well, you know what? They don't do this and they don't do this. Notice what John wrote. He wrote the gospel of John, but notice what he wrote in 1 John 3, verse 14. Notice how he describes this. He says this. It's not on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen. He says this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Excuse me? Anyone who does not love remains in death. Do you see where Jesus takes this? He takes love to an entirely different level of responding to other people. And what Paul is saying and responding to here is this idea that these people loved each other immensely. Lord, I thank you for their faith. Lord, I thank you for their love. And I thank you for what you're doing because as they come together And as they respond, they are bearing fruit and and they're hearing about their faith. There's something powerful that God is doing in this church collectively because of their faith and because of their love. So Paul says, Lord, I thank you for faith. I thank you for love. Number three, I thank you for hope. Look at verse five and six. This is a really kind of a long verse, but let me just read it. There's living hope here. He says, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in heaven for you and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. That has come to you all over this world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all of its truth. I, I think what we have here is an incredible Picture of, of hope, the 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 the, the broadness or, or the beauty of what hope looks like here, and and we see these elements of hope. And what I want to do is let me just take a minute or two to, to try and unpack this. Where does faith and love? Remember the the triad of our faith, faith, hope, and love. Where does faith and love come from? Well, faith and love from this from this text come from what? Hope, hope that is stored up for you. What is stored up for you in heaven? The fact that. I have responded to the word of truth, which is the gospel. Notice what he says. Word of truth, gospel. They go together. You want to know what truth is? Word of truth, gospel. Jesus is ultimately the truth. They go together. Jesus, life, death, burial, resurrection. All of the miracles, all of who Jesus is comes to us. And as we respond to him, but our faith and our trust in him, it is called the word of truth. And we embrace that. And my hope Our hope is not just here, but it's stored up in heaven for you. That's what he's talking about here. What are you hopeful for today? I'm hoping that it's going to get warmer. Hoping it's not going to snow. I can imagine there's a lot of mommies out there going, oh, dear Jesus, please don't let it snow Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Maybe there's some other things. Hoping this virus will end. Maybe the relationship that you're in will change. Maybe there's a, a physical thing that you're going through. Maybe you're hoping that that will change. You know, we have a, a lot of things to be hopeful for. And, and I think the idea of the word of truth in the gospel reminds us that because of who Jesus is and he conquered death, that we can find our hope in him. That's the song. Death. Death is done away with. The king is alive. So, so ultimately, my, my hope is in Jesus no matter where I'm at in life. No matter what I'm experiencing in God knows, Jesus knows, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in him. Even in the most difficult of circumstances of life. So I was, I was driving into work, and uh, I was listening to the radio, and radio station 99.1, uh, it came on. And uh, there's a song by Toby Mack, and he's been around for a long time. And uh, I was listening to the song, and I would never really listened to the words. And the, na- the name of the song, the title of the song is, is, is 21, 21 years. I not know if you don't know the context of the the song, but this is the context of the song. Toby Mac had a son. He's 21 years old. About a year ago, he passed away tragically, horribly. He just passed away, 21 years old. In the midst of the grieving process, the questions and all of that, he, he wrote the lyrics to this song. His son's name was Truett. I mean, and he wrote it from the point of a grieving father. I mean, that's hard. And when you've lost a loved one, when something bad has happened in your life, when your world is rocked, where do we go? The Bible says that I can go to the word of truth. The Bible says that I can go to Jesus. He won't necessarily fix that circumstances, but in the midst of that, he will give me hope. And I think that's the way that he wrote the context of this word. Let me just give you a couple of the lines. I think they're going to be on the screen. It says this. Here's the chorus. Is it just across the Jordan or a city in the stars? Are you singing with the angels? Are you happy where you are? Well, until this show is over and you run into my arms, God has you in heaven, but I have you in my heart. What he's doing, he's reflecting on the life of Jesus. He's reflecting on the nature and the character of who Jesus is and what he offers to us. And then he says these words, reflecting on what might have been going on in the life of his son. Did he see you from a long way off, running to him with a father's heart? Did you wrap him up inside your arms and let him know he's home? Is it just across the Jordan or a city in the stars? Are you singing with the angels? Are you happy where you are? Well, until the show is over and you run into my arms, God has you in heaven, but I have you in my heart. He's writing from the perspective of a broken-hearted father, but he's looking forward to and anticipating the fact that one day, because of who Jesus is and the promises that we have in the Word of Truth, the Gospel, that he will one day see his son again. That is the hope stored up in heaven for us—that we will one day be with Jesus in all of the brokenness of this world, and all of the stuff in this world, and all of the pain and all of the suffering is going to be done away with and we have this message of hope that comes to us because of the cross of Jesus Christ that's the the, the message of truth that's the word of truth, that's the gospel it says it is stored up in heaven for you you know how he describes hope in these verses it's the gospel life, death, burial Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gospel had the idea of this, of good news. So what Christians did was they took this idea of good news. A military person would come and say, we've got good news. We have good news. We won the victory. Or maybe there's some political victory. We have good news. Well, the Christians took that good news and and brought it into the idea of Jesus and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God has come and he's, he's, he's offered me grace and he's offered you grace. I can be forgiven of my sin and reconciled to a holy God. That's great, isn't it? Chuck Swindoll said this about God's grace. He said, every thought, every time the thought of grace appears, there's the idea of being undeserved. In no way is the recipient getting what he or she deserves. Favor is being extended simply out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. That's the hope of the message of the gospel, that God would come and offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for my sin. So hope is the gospel. Hope is also the word of truth. We already looked at that. The gospel and the word of truth go together. In other words, I have my faith made secure in who he is, that what I'm reading, experiencing from the Bible and the life of Jesus is this idea of word of truth and the gospel. They go right together. The gospel, this idea of the word of truth, hope is also in the future. That's what he says, stored up in heaven for you. What are you looking forward to in heaven? Being reunited with people? Pain and suffering going away? Man, I've got ringing in my ears. I've got tinnitus. It's probably getting worse out of this year. My body's breaking down. I've got family members there. My, my circle of influence is slowly getting smaller and smaller. I look forward to anticipating the time when I'll spend eternity, when there'll be mo- no more weeping, no more crying. All of this will be done. Why? Because there's hope stored up in heaven. And by the way, one last thing. Notice what he says, hope is universal. Verse six says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Think about it, think about it. Lives are being changed, what Paul is saying, lives are being changed all over the world. Why? Because the message of Jesus is going out. Epaphras came and he brought it, probably maybe heard it from, Paul in Ephesus, so he goes back to his hometown of Colossae and begins to tell people about Jesus. And from from, uh, Colossae to Aeropolis to Decapolis, all of a sudden the message of the gospel is, is, is going forth and it's bearing fruit and lives are being changed as they take the message out. This is a missions message right here. This is a missions message to us. Thank you, Lord, that the power of the gospel is universal and does not, it's not exclusive to one group not exclusive to one type of people. There's a hope stored in heaven for us. So Paul says, thank you for faith, thank you for love, thank you for hope, and thank you for the way that you change lives. Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 3 one last time. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. In other words, it's all about Jesus and what he's done. Okay, so, let me just end this real quickly. I can do this. Paul says, thank you for faith. Thank you for love. Thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel message. And then he says, thank you for people. Thank you for faithful people. That's who Epaphras says. Look at verse 7 and 8. Thank you for faithful servants. How did people in Colossae hear about Jesus? Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras. Notice how he's described. I I look at this verse and say, okay, Clint, what is the responsibility in your life? And I look at some of the people that are around me, and and if we want to be faithful ministers, we want to be faithful to God's call, maybe there's some elements here. Notice what he says. You learned it from Epaphras, dear fellow servant. You and I were simply servants of the Lord. We're servants of the Lord. We're bond servants of Jesus. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Notice what he says, on our behalf. Epaphras is serving not Paul. He's serving the message of the gospel. He's serving Jesus by taking the message to the people of Colossae. Life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I've learned these wonderful truths about the church at Colossae, Paul says, I've learned these wonderful truths about the church at Colossae and the people there, and I've learned it from Epaphras. papyrus. He's come and he's, he's told me all about your faith and all about your, your love and all about your hope. And I've just simply been a faithful servant. And one last verse and we're done. Notice how, how papyrus is described in chapter 4, verse 12. We'll see this a little later. Faithful minister. A papyrus who is one of you, And a servant of Christ Jesus sends you greetings. Somehow, in some way, he's not going back with them. We don't know exactly why. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and at Hierapolis. What an incredible commendation from Paul. He loves you, he cares for you, but he's wrestling for you as he prays for you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, I can imagine him saying, looking at family members. Remember, this is a house church, looking at family members and looking at people and and saying, God, I'm I'm praying for this person over here, and I'm, I'm praying for this person over here, and I'm praying for this person over here. And he's wrestling with them in prayers. So, as you sit down to pray this week, as you do some fasting this week, Just open your mind and your heart to being grateful to the Lord for the faith that he's given to you, the love that we have and the love that we experience, the hope that we have. And maybe focus on one or two of those and to give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. Father, thank you for faith. Father, I thank you for the word of God. God, in in, in the midst of just the chaos of our world, Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We bless you. We thank you that we serve a God who desires to bless us immensely. Father, I thank you for the faith of my brothers, my sisters, the people in this room. I thank you for the love that we have. I thank you for the hope that we have. Father, I thank you for the security that we find here this morning. And Father, as we sing this last song together, Lord, I ask that you would unite our hearts and who Jesus is, that he is the the, the supreme one, Lord, that he would continue to be all in my life, in all of our lives, that we would simply lift our eyes, look up and see Jesus. And Father, we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.